0: Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind the scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to episode 43. So, I just got back from spending a few days off the mountain. I went to scout a location for a future workshop for coffee producers in the Antioquia region. I went to visit Felipe's farm in Santa Barbara. You guys met Felipe in episode 38, Reverse Engineering of $5 Castillo. In addition to spending time on the farm, I got to spend two days in Medellin. I was really impressed by the city of Eternal Spring. While we were there, it rained a little bit, but the weather was very comfortable. Even though it is a large city with almost 3 million inhabitants full of commerce and business, I was surprised to see that there was so much green space. Everywhere I looked, there were living walls, like everywhere, like on the corner of a pharmacy on the side of any kind of store, there were living walls. Um, There were flowers growing wild on the sidewalks and they had the most beautiful road medians. Like There was just green, beautiful plant life everywhere. And I really appreciated seeing a city like that put so much effort into beautifying its green public spaces. In addition to the plants, one of the highlights of the trip was getting to know the developing specialty coffee scene. I got to visit three different specialty coffee shops, Rituales, Pergamino, and Distrito Cafetero. It was encouraging to see and taste how much the local coffee scene is growing in producing countries. I've mentioned that Antigua and Guatemala has great coffee shops, but Antigua has high rates of tourism. Inside most specialty shops, you'll find more tourists and expats than locals. What I noticed in Medellin is that the coffee shops were full of Colombians. Yes, they are Colombians of a particularly high social class, but at least they are locals and that feels like progress. The class system in Colombia is something I have found unique to this country, and I wouldn't have become aware of it if I didn't live here. Colombian society has been highly stratified with social classes right out of Downton Abbey or Bridgerton. The first time Nick and I went to pay our utility bill, we were surprised by how low it was. Uh, Especially because here it's a two-month cycle. So we inspected the receipt, and on the receipt it clearly said that we were Strato Uno Bajo Bajo. Class 1, low, low. I mean, we're already level 1, I don't think the bajo is necessary, and then adding a second bajo just seems mean. So we're basically social level negative (laughs) 2, No one met with us. No one looked at our income or tax returns. No information was required. Just by living where we live, the location alone is enough for the government to think that only poor people live here who need subsidies to pay their bills. We live so far out in the country. Logic dictates that you would only live here if you are desperate and poor or a coffee farmer. Coffee farmers do not make a lot of money, so a combination of the type of person that lives here and the undesirability of living so far out puts us in the lowest social class in Colombia. According to the government, no affluent person would choose to live out here. And that's actually how a lot of our neighbors think of us, too. They find us very confusing. Which, at the moment, works out very well for us. Our electricity is cheap, and we love where we live. But it got me curious about the system. Unique to Colombia, the stratification system is applied according to a home's characteristics, and now I'm pulling this quote from Wikipedia. It says, The government argues that poor housing is inhabited by poor families. What I read is that the class system is supposed to designate buildings and neighborhoods, not people. They say it was designed as a progressive, quote, system of solidarity, unquote. First launched in Bogota in the 80s, before spreading to almost every urban area in Colombia, the system has grown to incorporate university fees and social programs. All neighborhoods in the city in Bogota are classified 1 through 6, with 1 being the poorest and 6 being the richest. The idea is that people in neighborhoods 5 and 6 pay higher rates on utilities and services like water, telephone, and trash collection to subsidize the poor people who live in Estrato 1, 2, and 3. Because certain expenses, like utilities, are paid on a sliding scale based on your strato. Even if you use the same amount of energy, the rate you pay depends on your strato. The older families with generational wealth only live in certain geographical areas. These areas are highly protected. I've heard that if you're looking to rent in particular neighborhoods in Cali, you must be of a certain class for them to even consider your application. It's not just about having enough money to be able to pay the rent, but it's also important to know your social standing and perhaps they take into account your family history. This is where the lines get blurred. Stratos were supposed to be geographical designations that talked about the buildings, but the stigma has transferred to people. Colombians have adopted the system as a tool to classify people. Where you live determines what kind of person you are. The system that was designed as a social program is now accused of fueling social segregation. I read an article in The Guardian, linked in the show notes, that says quote, Several decades after stratification was introduced, Colombia remains the second most unequal country in Latin America, according to World Bank figures. End quote. Colombians tend to be extremely status conscious, and the class identity is an important aspect of social life because it regulates the interaction of groups and individuals. Social class boundaries are far more flexible in the city than in the countryside, but consciousness of status and class distinction continues to permeate social life throughout Colombia. That's a quote from Wikipedia, and while it sounds antiquated, it is still very present in today's Colombia, or at least in today's Colombia that Lucia experiences. Working on the farm, there are a lot of materials that need to be constantly moved. Moncada is our official driver. I have spent many hours in the car with this man because he's the one who moves the cherry or takes the cream coffee away from the mill to the city. His truck is the only one who can make it up the mountain, so for any visitors, he's hired to drive. He brought every piece of material to build our house here at Colombia. He's the one who picks us up and drops us off at the airport. I see Moncada almost as much as I see Nick. Over the last year and a half, I have gotten to know him really well. His family has lived in Santuario for a long time. He is one of seven, and all the siblings work in various trades in the town. He is a person who can't walk two feet without getting into a conversation with someone he knows. Everybody knows Moncada. And he has a daughter and granddaughter who also live in town. We often see them walking to school or to the park when we are running errands with Moncada in town. He always honks, and we all wave to the family of Moncadas walking down the street. Last December, around Christmas time, we were taking a ride, and I asked him what his holiday plans were. Knowing that he has so much family so close and grandchildren just a few houses away, I assumed he would be very busy celebrating with them. He said, No, not really. No plans. And I was like, What? How come? You have so much family here. Don't you see your granddaughter? And very casually, like not at all in a sad tone, he said, Oh no, she married into a higher strato, so he doesn't see them very much, especially not on holidays. I was shocked. I said, But it's your family, you live three houses apart, what do you mean you don't see them? And he said that they keep to themselves and only hang out with the higher Estrato people. There was no sadness, no bitterness in his tone, like it was the most normal thing to have lost his family to a higher class, and the most normal thing to know that he is not welcome at their parties because he is a lower class. Growing up in America, in San Francisco, this was really hard for me to understand. Back to Wikipedia. Throughout Colombia's history, class structure has played a significant role in society. Class has been a dominant factor with regard to economics, politics, and social parameters. The social structures that were in place during the colonial era left a legacy of hierarchy that continued to shape Colombian society even after the fall of the chattel slavery system in 1851. There are patterns that develop along with certain behaviors and how those in power interact with those that have little or no control. In Colombia, this means that whites, who have held power since the 16th century, exercise control over the indigenous population as well as those imported from Africa. So when the practice of slavery ended, the attitude of whites was still to maintain control over economics and politics, thereby ensuring that they would remain at the top of the nation's power structure. This is true of most locations that were heavily impacted by the Atlantic slave trade. And this colorism, this is something that I notice a lot on the farm too. People refer to each other a lot by color. They'll call them, you know, but when they're trying to describe someone, and again, it's just so ingrained, it doesn't seem mean or malicious, but they'll describe someone as negro, black, even though they're just maybe a little bit more, I don't know, sun-tanned than anybody else. They're not actually black. I also remember having a conversation with a Colombian friend of mine from a higher strato and we were talking about skincare and I was talking about uh, SPF and she said that she had a habit of always wearing it. It was just sort of drilled into her and she didn't question it until she got much older but there was, this, there was a lot of pressure to not become any darker, to not tan, to try to get your skin, you know, very white, which is something that we hear a lot more about, I think, in um, Indian cultures. So I was a little bit surprised to hear about this And Latin cultures as well. You know, it's funny the tangents that come when I was trying to tell you about coffee shops and the local specialty culture in Colombia. Anyway, let's get back to cafes and my time in Medellin. Another highlight of the trip was getting to meet Nikolai first from Desarrolladores de Café. Nikolai is a 2019 German cup tasting champion and a barista trainer. He has a wet mill in the city. It was an incredible place. It's so rare to have a coffee farm and processing facility so close to a large metropolitan city. I was able to share some pictures of my visit on Instagram and Patreon as well. So during our tour, I also saw his mother culture to inoculate the coffee fermentations, so this guy takes his fermentations very, very seriously. And the reason I met Nikolai is because we both contributed to an article for Barista Hustle about extended fermentations. Nikolai was speaking about his 500-hour fermentation, and you guys know me, I'm a minimalist, I don't think more is more, I think less is more, so I personally don't do long fermentations and I discourage my clients from going too long. And it's not because I'm worried about spoilage or ill-named over-fermentation, I just try to find the point of diminishing returns and make fermentations as short as I can get away with so that producers can move on to other things. Before going there, I didn't know who he was because I live on a mountain under a rock with unreliable access to the internet. So I didn't know who he was until we were both interviewed for this article. Then, shortly after the article came out, I had a chance to visit Medellin, where Nikolai is based, and I asked to meet him. Something that I didn't realize until after arriving at the mill and talking to him for a while was the vibe of the article made it seem like we were like on opposite sides of the issue. Like, Nikolai was... Pro long fermentations, and Lucia was anti Nikolai's long fermentations. I was even asked by the publication if I had tried the five hundred hour coffees, because how could I be so against them if I had never even tasted them? At that point, I didn't need to taste the coffees because my issue with long fermentation is not about flavor development; it's about opportunity cost. Why would a producer do a five hundred hour fermentation? When a similar flavor profile can be achieved in 36 hours, and then they could spend the other 464 hours to process more coffee, or spend time in fertilizer farm, or spend time with their family, or read a book, or take a nap. I just want producers to know that they don't have to do 500 hour or even 100 hour fermentations to produce a good cup of coffee. But, if that's what floats your boat, I totally support producers who choose this path because they are fermentation enthusiasts of course I support producers who are fermentation enthusiasts. I also want to point out that due to his successful career as a champion and educator, Nikolai has direct access to consumers who want these kinds of coffees. And I think it can be discouraging when other producers who don't have that fame or the infrastructure or the time for long fermentations keep hearing that this is what consumers want and that this is the path to specialty coffee. So yeah, when confronted with the glorification of super-extended fermentations, I do push back, just in case there are any producers listening, because I like to be the voice that says, there are many ways to achieve good flavor, even short, quick ways. In the article, maybe it seemed like I was anti nikolai which I never meant to be. We had never met or talked to each other, and yet he was such a great host to our group, so I don't think he felt like I was against him. But I still think that may be the impression left by putting us side by side. Seeing the juxtaposition of our extreme views kind of force this dichotomy. This is something that I would like to clarify, because I talk a lot about science, and maybe some people could misinterpret that science says coffee fermentations should be a certain way, or that shorter fermentations are more correct than longer ones, especially because so many still hold the myth of over-fermentations. I like shorter fermentations because that's my preference, not because it's more correct. I'm not anti-anyone doing long fermentations, but I am anti-promoting the idea that long fermentations are higher quality. There is no right way to ferment. There is no ultimate fermentation. So in conclusion, Medellin is a cool city. Nikolai has delicious coffee, roasted in a spectacular way, and if you get the opportunity to try them, I recommend it. Links to his roastery are also in the show notes. Alright, should we get started? (laughs) kind of a long intro sorry guys uh 15 minutes okay today we are continuing the theme from episode 42 about the impacts of germination on coffee quality i hope this is not your first episode with me because we are building on information from previous topics but if it is welcome you are cool and weird to click on this dry title okay quick recap Episode 42 looked at the germination of coffee seeds during processing. As you guys know, I look at the world through the lens of microbiology, and while it's important to be knowledgeable about an area, a common pitfall is that focus can result in blinders for other matters. I realized that I was so focused on how microbiology related to quality coffee that I was ignoring how plant physiology also impacted quality. And these episodes are here to help us fill in some gaps between the metabolic activity of microbes on the outside of the seed and the metabolic activity of the plant itself on the inside of the seed, or the seed itself. Today, we continue the journey started by a small group of researchers in Germany. In 2005, three authors, Sven Knopp, Gerhard Beitoff, and Dirk Selmar looked at differences in sugar content of wet-processed coffees compared to dry-processed coffees. They found that seeds from a wet process had significantly less glucose and fructose than the dry process. Remember, sugar from the mucilage doesn't flow into the seed, as is often said with a honey or a natural process coffee. But it's also unlikely that sugar is leaking out in a wet process. That paper was important because it not only helped us end a myth about honey and naturals, but more importantly, it opened up a new mystery about where all that sugar was going because it couldn't be explained with water dilution. The authors, being plant people, formed the hypothesis that the seed is germinating during processing. In 2006, a year later, the same three continued this work with an additional researcher, Bjorn Breitenstein, The four of them discovered that during wet processing, the seed does give off signals of germination. They were able to detect two markers, two indicators of germination. The first is isocitrate lyase, ICL for short. This is a germination-specific enzyme, and they also measured beta-tubulin, which indicates cell activity in the embryo, like elongation and dividing. This new information helped make sense of where the glucose and fructose were going in the wet process, So they were not leaching out of the seeds, they were instead being used for new metabolic activity inside the seed. We know that mucilage doesn't just disappear, it is broken down by microbes and transformed into something else. Similarly, the stored carbohydrates in the seed don't disappear, they get broken down and used for something else. I thought 24 hours would be too short to see this kind of effect. But the research showed that wet-processed coffees reached peak activity between 24 and 48 hours. And over the next few days, even up to 7 days later, which would be 168-hour fermentation, they were still able to measure some faint signals. Imagine a light shining brightest at 2 days and then each day getting dimmer. Again, this made sense for wet-processed coffees because their outer skin, the cascara, is removed. This alone is a signal for the seed that it can germinate. And as implied in the name, the wet process has a lot of moisture around, another good signal that it's safe to germinate. Additionally, fermentations often produce heat, so the coffee seed finds itself in an environment that is moist, warm, and physically liberated. What was surprising in the research was that the dry-processed coffee also showed metabolic activity. It is surprising because the outer skin stays on, giving physical pressure to suppress germination. Additionally, as the name implies, there is much less moisture in the environment, another factor that we would expect to suppress germination. But when they looked at the data, there it was. The dry, processed coffee was shining its bright light too, just like the wet process. The signals were faint on day 1 through 5, But on day seven, that light was as bright as a day two light in the wet process. So you can kind of imagine these as kind of opposite maps where the wet process shines very bright in the beginning and then slowly dims. And then the dry process has a little bit of light signals for the first couple of days. And then on the seventh day, it's brightest peak. And that's where we left it last time with new answers about where the sugar could be going, but more questions about what is happening in the dry process. And what is the source of quality difference between these two methods? Okay, so then the next year, in 2017, the same four researchers, Selmar Baitoff and Knopf and Breitenstein, were now joined by three new people, Daniela Kramer, Jan, I'm not even going to pretend to pronounce this name, uh, and Stephen Groot. Their paper is titled, Transient Occurrence of Seed Germination Processes During Coffee Post-Harbon Treatment. And this paper appears in the journal annals of botany. The original three are now seven people strong. Here's an excerpt from the paper. Quote, surprisingly, germination-related ICL expression also takes place during the course of dry processing, although in this case the pulp remains around the seed. Obviously, an endogenous induction of germination overcomes the pulp-related suppression of this process. End quote. This kind of reminds me of being in high school and reading Shakespeare the assignment was to translate the iambic pentameter to regular, modern, high school speech. So to translate the research speak, they are basically saying, turns out, dry process seeds germinate even though all signals say, hey, now's not a good time. And we, the researchers, are very surprised by this. The authors determined that in the wet process, the ICL enzyme is triggered by the removal of the cascara, or pulp. But since the dry process keeps the pulp, this cannot be the only way that germination can be triggered. They also note that they had weak, kind of minor signals of ICL on fresh coffee fruit, not just seven days after the wet process. However, they mention that because the cherries were harvested in Brazil and then they had to be transported to their lab in Germany, it was about 36 hours between picking the fruit and pulping it in their lab, The cherries were shipped frozen, so metabolic activity should be zero, but they still note the time difference and the small activity. So let's put a pin in this. We will come back to the shipping delay later. So this information indicates that ICL must be triggered in other ways besides pulp removal because those seeds still had their pulp and yet they were still signaling. They say, quote, apparently... Detachment from the mother plant or the onset of drying is enough to trigger transcription of the ICL gene, quote. This is a really interesting point that I don't want you guys to miss. I've talked about this moment in terms of fermentation before. For a long time, many producers thought that fermentation was something that happened in the tanks after the coffee was pulped. Fermentation was an action that was defined by the physical steps, the pulper and the tank. But if you update your definition of fermentation to mean the metabolic activity of yeast and bacteria, then it's no longer limited to the tank. Microbe metabolic activity can happen outside the tank. And not only outside the tank, like say a raised bed or a patio, meaning that all processing methods undergo some level of fermentation, but this also means that fermentation is not restricted to a physical place or a particular process. So additionally, this viewpoint also changes the starting time of fermentation. Fermentation does not start when the coffee hits the tank or the patio, or even when the coffee is pulped. Fermentation can start when the cherry is picked off the tree. This is because harvesting creates a physical injury, a hole where the individual cherry was attached to the coffee tree. The mucilage, the sugary juice on the inside, can now combine with the cocktail of yeast and bacteria that are on the cascara skin. Most producers count fermentation time zero as the moment when the tank is filled. But let's imagine that harvested cherries sat around in the bag for half a day before they were loaded onto a truck. And then let's say they traveled for a few hours, and then maybe as often happens the truck broke down or there was traffic, and maybe the cherries don't get to the beneficio until very late. Maybe the cherries arrived so late that the workers were already gone and the cherries couldn't be pulped until the next day. And then, let's say, it takes another three hours to pulp the coffee and fill the tank. And then the coffee stays there until the next morning. So in some cases, a producer would say that they have a 20-hour fermentation. But if you upgrade your idea of a fermentation, actual fermentation time zero is when the cherries are picked. So in that scenario that I described, which is quite common... Fermentation time is 20 hours in the tank plus potentially another 24 hours of transit. Or perhaps there is a lot of rain and some cherries split open, and that can also provide an opportunity for microbe metabolic activity. So some level of fermentation can start before the coffee has even been picked. So some cherries, like very ripe cherries or physically damaged cherries, can be almost fully fermented before they even arrive at the beneficio. If you're a fermentation savvy coffee producer you've had to adjust when you consider the start of your fermentation for your conditions time zero has moved further up the timeline and now the authors are telling us that picking the fruit is enough to initiate ICL transcription meaning we need to adjust our germination time zero picking the fruit is a signal to the embryo that the environment has changed it's not attached to the mother plant anymore external conditions changed and seed metabolic activity can occur. So micro metabolic activity and seed metabolic activity can be signaled to start at very close to the same time. We also know that the cascara and the pulp still send suppression signals, and that's why germination is much faster in the wet process when the cascara is off than the dry process. But it's like there are two competing signals. One signal is like the voice of an excited little brother that says, hey, we're no longer attached to mom, let's go. And there's also the voice of the more cautious older sister that says, yes, but we still have a barrier. Let's wait a little bit longer. Like when you're in a car pressing on the accelerator and the brakes at the same time. One thing I don't know is if both signals are equally strong, which the analogy implies. So don't take the analogy too seriously. Just know that there are competing signals of go ahead, time to germinate and grow, and also suppression signals of "Uh, uh, maybe not yet. Now's not the best time. And also, there are a hundred more signals because life is complicated, but to introduce the topic, we are just talking about these two. Okay, so ICL is the enzyme that signals a transition from late embryogenesis to germination. But the authors acknowledge that the estimation of germination is problematic in recalcitrant and intermediate seeds. Remember, coffee seeds are non-orthodox. This makes them difficult not just for long-term storage, but also for these other metabolic markers. We can't dry and keep coffee seeds for long periods like corn. So studying the normal metabolic processes is also difficult. The researchers are trying to study something that is difficult to define on a subject that is difficult to study. The authors say, This indicates that the germination-related metabolic reactions and possibly corresponding reserve mobilization processes might be responsible, at least in part, for the processing-related differences in coffee beans. However, final confirmation can only be provided by further investigations of coffee seed physiology. (laughs) Alright, let's translate that too. So, the reserve mobilization process sounds kind of militaristic, doesn't it? Well, it's the mobilization, so the movement of food reserves from the seed storage organs, so the endosperm, that provide the essential energy to fuel and grow until the seed becomes photoautotrophic. So the endosperm provides just enough reserves, just enough energy to get the embryo to develop roots and leaves and start getting its nutrition from sunlight and soil. A seed is basically like a bagged lunch for the embryo that it can carry with it to sustain it until it can land and grow in a better place. I know it's bad practice to anthropomorphize yeast and seeds. It's very unscientific to impose one's own story this way. But thinking about yeast and seeds in this way, like little beings, helps me make sense of the world. Unfortunately, I'm not a researcher and I don't write scientific papers. I make a podcast for coffee enthusiasts. So, well, there you go. So for me, The most interesting part of the previous research is that we know now that just being picked, being removed from the mother tree, can initiate a response in the coffee seed. Many of us see the picking as the end of the metabolic development of the seed. But instead of being the end, picking signals a new beginning. Instead of stopping, imagine a Rube Goldberg machine of reactions being set off. That research kicked off another thread that we are now going to follow. Next, Daniela Kramer takes the lead with Bjorn Brechenstein, Dirk Selmar, and a new name, Mike Kinewatcher, to look more deeply at coffee drying. This next paper appeared in the Journal of Plant Cell Physiology in 2010. I'm not going to tell you the title yet because the title gives something away that I want us to discover together. In the web process, we were not surprised to see enzyme activity because we know seeds need moisture to germinate we know water facilitates all kinds of reactions. That's the reason we want to dry coffee quickly, is to get out of this danger zone where the coffee can change, where it can start a new fermentation that we didn't intend, or where we can sometimes physically see mold growing on the surface of drying coffee. If you've been following my work for a while, you will be familiar with my favorite quote from Niels Bohr, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1922. He said, The opposite of a fact is a falsehood. But the opposite of a profound truth is often another profound truth. The profound truth is that high moisture content triggers metabolic activity in microbes that are fermenting the mucilage. High moisture content also triggers seed metabolism because it can begin to germinate. But the opposite of that profound truth is also true. Low moisture content also triggers metabolic reactions. The opposite of high moisture content, the drying process, the constant and dramatic loss of water, can also trigger metabolic activity in the seed. The authors were interested to see how drying affects the metabolic activity and why the dry process was also giving off germination signals. The authors designed the experiment to compare if different drying styles affect the metabolic activity. So now I will tell you the title of the paper. The paper is called Stress metabolism in green coffee beans, expressions of dehydrins, and accumulation of GABA during drying. So they looked at continuous drying, like in a mechanical dryer, compared to traditional sun drying that has natural pauses during the night. They didn't use the sun, however. They dried the coffee mechanically in both scenarios, but one was traditional and continuous, and the other mimicked the sun by having 8-hour pauses. So what were they measuring? They were measuring gamma-aminobutyric acid. GABA. This non-protein amino acid accumulates in plant tissues in response to plant growth. If we are talking about germination, we know it has to do with cell growth. But the very interesting role of GABA is that it is also a marker of biotic and abiotic stress. So when the coffee signals GABA, is it signaling germination or is it signaling stress? Or is it signaling for both? Or is germination stressful? Before we unpack that, let's talk about amino acids. Amino acids are compounds that combine to form larger molecules called proteins. They are the building blocks, like Lego pieces that you join together to make a Lego car, or a Lego building, or a Lego city. There are 20 specific amino acids to make a protein. These 20 proteins can be arranged in thousands of different combinations to make a variety of proteins. All proteins are made up of a combination of these 20 amino acids, alanine, asparagine, aspartic acid, arginine, cysteine, glutamic acid, glutamine, glycine, histidine, isoleucine, lysine, leucine, methionine, phenylalanine, proline, serine, threonine, tyrosine, tryptophan, and valine. As a coffee producer, or even a coffee enthusiast, do you need to know this? No, absolutely not. In my courses in plant biology, I did have to know all 20 and know their abbreviations and their structure. To pass my class, I had to be able to draw the chemical structure of all 20 amino acids. I promise you, that has long left my brain. But for some reason, the only one that remains is proline. I guess it's kind of because it looks like a sperm. It's a pentagon carbon ring with like a little tail. It's weird, the things that we remember and the things that don't stick around. I do wish I could still draw all 20 structures, because it felt like a cool party trick to be able to draw the Legos of life. But no, you don't need to know the 20 amino acids that make up proteins or their structure. But the reason I mention it is because, just like fermentation, we throw around the term amino acid a lot, and we just nod our heads and say, oh yeah, I know amino acids are used in the mayard reaction in roasting, or oh yeah, I know yeast produces amino acids during fermentation, or. Now I know that germination triggers the release of amino acids. And now you're learning that amino acids trigger metabolic reactions in plants. In your coffee education, you will hear about amino acids a lot more moving forward in regards to plant biology, or perhaps more in fermentation and in roasting. Amino acids are the building blocks of proteins and life, and they are flavor precursors, and they can signal chemical reactions. I just want you guys to know that there are a lot of amino acids and that they are not all the same. And the one that we are focusing on today is GABA. GABA is an amino acid that is not included in the main 20 used to build protein, so it is called a non-protein amino acid. And this group performs several biologically important functions. Let's go back to the 2010 paper. In the first paragraph, the authors say, A decrease in water potential of the still-living coffee seeds induces massive drought stress. GABA is accumulated in response to several stress conditions. The strong decrease in water potential corresponds to classical drought stress. But GABA is also accumulated in a number of plants in the course of normal germination. So the question arose as to whether GABA accumulation occurs in the course of green processing is a stress response or due to the metabolic steps involved in ongoing germination. Meaning, in the previous research, when the authors were measuring germination in the dry process, maybe it wasn't really germination. Maybe what they were actually measuring is drought stress. That also looks a lot like germination. To help answer this question, the authors needed an additional marker. They decided to measure dehydrins. An increase in the gene expression of dehydrins is strongly correlated with several types of stress conditions. The authors found that when the coffee was dried with pauses, they detected dehydrins earlier and GABA earlier than in coffee that was dried continuously. Both signs of stress were showing up earlier in the coffee with pauses in the slower drying and perhaps more gentle method. Not only was it peaking early in the coffee dried with pauses, but there were two spikes. So this should probably have some alarm bells ringing for you because this is very counterintuitive. So remember, dehydrants show drought stress and you would expect signs of drought stress to come from the continuous drying because that is the drying that is happening more quickly. And the results were so odd, in fact, that the authors decided to run the experiment again and triple the amount of samples that they were pulling the the samples that they were checking, and hopefully that more frequent sampling would allow them to see if they were perhaps missing some signals. But after they repeated the experiment and took a lot more samples, they realized that, nope, it happened again. The same results the second time. So the authors conclude that two peaks mean that two distinct events are responsible for the induction of stress. The initial peak in GABA is due to germination-related events, and the second corresponds to drought stress. But dehydrins also showed two peaks. The authors say that more research is needed, but they hypothesize that dehydrins that show the drought stress peak twice because the first is the drought stress from the endosperm tissue. And since the embryo is completely enveloped by the endosperm, it's like a delayed reaction. The outer tissue protects the inner embryo. The inner embryo has a higher moisture content in the beginning, and it doesn't feel the drought stress until later. So really what we're talking about is, you know, two peaks for GABA, two peaks for dehydrin. So this is four kind of four events that affect the seed. So the first one is... Um, har- harvesting being picked being removed from the mother plant that creates a spike in icl and then we have pulping potentially creating another spike but because we're talking about the dry process we're going to skip that one so remember icl the first peak being removed from the mother plant the second one is this germination related um, event the third one is once The moisture content has dropped dramatically in the endosperm, kind of on the outer layers of the seed. And then there's a fourth spike, there's a fourth signal, there's a fourth time that the seed signals when potentially it's the embryo that has lost its moisture. So you've got kind of like going from the outside of the seed going into the deeper layers. So these are four events that potentially are stressful to the seed that show this stress. And stress is an interesting topic because while in people we know that stress is a killer, in plants, stress can be associated with quality. For example, in wine, we want stressed vines. If a grapevine is too, quote, happy, unquote, if it has all of the nutrients and all of the sunshine it needs, it will be green and big and it will grow strong and vigorous, but it may not make the best fruit. Which could be counterintuitive. You'd think that if the plant had all the water and nutrients it needed, it would produce the best fruit. But the understanding in wine grapes is that we want stress. Stress signals to the plant that times are tough, it might not survive, so it should put all of its energy into ensuring the next generation can survive. Instead of growing big green leaves, it should direct its energy into developing its fruit so the seeds have a better chance of survival. It is accepted in the wine industry that stressed grapes make better wine higher concentrations of polyphenols. Remember, in coffee, phenols are a defect, but in wine, they are an attribute. It's the phenolic compounds that give wine the deep color, the anthocyanins, and the health benefits, the antioxidants, the free radical scavengers. In fact, water restriction to grapevine is a common way to artificially create stress. In California, most grapevines have irrigation lines for watering. A grape grower creates a water deficit schedule, or a program, to correctly stress the vine at the optimum times to maximize flavor, but not damage or kill the plant. They know when to provide and when to withhold water to trick the plant into putting its energy into fruit development and not vegetative growth. I think I've talked about this before. As an intern, this is an important job. It's tedious work, but that's why it's intern work. You go out very early in the morning and measure the plants kind of like taking their blood pressure. You measure how stressed or healthy they are, and then you adjust your watering schedule. It can seem quite cruel to push the vines almost to the breaking point on purpose. This is another striking difference between coffee growing and wine grape growing. Where I live in Colombia, the common FNC guidelines are to constantly replant coffees because older trees tend to lose productivity. The most valued attribute is production quantity, not quality. So if you have new trees, you'll have a bigger crop. But in winemaking, older vines are valued for the fruit quality they produce. Even though they are much less productive, it's still common to have 60 to 100-year-old vines in Napa. Like old vines Zinfandel can be 100 years old. So now, this idea of the intern slash nurse going into the field to take the metaphorical blood pressure of each individual vine makes more sense. These vines are old and valuable, and you don't want to accidentally kill them by stressing them too much. Remember in previous research when the cherries were harvested in Brazil but frozen and shipped to Germany? In those studies, the authors found signals of ICL. Their reasoning was due to the time delay of getting the seeds halfway across the world. They didn't have a true time zero. However, another advantage of this group is that they have a greenhouse of coffee where they could immediately harvest and test coffee seeds. When they analyzed a fresh coffee fruit from the greenhouse, meaning zero delay, they got negligible or non-detectable levels of ICL. Now that we know that GABA signals stress and that being removed from the mother plant can signal the transcription of ICL, perhaps the difference in the ICL levels of the coffee from the Brazilian farm and the coffee seeds from the German greenhouse is that they were picked very differently. Imagine with me for a moment the force of a large mechanical harvester picking cherries in a Brazilian farm versus a scientist picking coffee cherries from a protected greenhouse in Germany. In the second case, I imagine a gloved hand picking a single cherry at a time and carrying it on a pillow across a red carpet to the laboratory. These experiments are expensive. They have limited materials. There are limited coffee plants growing in Germany. You best believe those guys are going to baby the heck out of their seeds. This is just my imagination, but I can't help but wonder if we are downplaying the role physical manhandling has on these differences in quality. In winemaking we want stressed plants but very gentle winemaking it was drilled into me early how important it is to be gentle with the grapes we don't want to create sheer forces we don't want to break the skins on the grapes too early and oxidize our fruit heck we've talked about carbonic maceration being developed as a way to avoid harming the seeds in fact in carbonic maceration for winemaking the entire grape cluster is used meaning the grapes are still attached to the rachis it would be like cutting off the entire branch of the coffee tree and sticking that whole thing in the tank. Now we know that removing the fruit from the pedicel triggers a response. In carbonic maceration of grapes, that response is not triggered because each individual grape is still attached to part of the plant. It is very, very gentle handling. In wine, it's very clear that stress is a good thing for flavor. In coffee, What's missing from most of this work, let's say all of this work, is a sensory evaluation. I don't yet know if stress is bad for quality or good for quality. Think about all the possible stress opportunities for coffee. From the way that you pick it, to transportation, germination, fermentation, and drying. With each stress opportunity, the seed is releasing amino acids and triggering other reactions. It could be that more stress activates and releases flavor precursors for us, the consumers, to enjoy. Or perhaps each stress opportunity is losing material, creating fewer flavor precursors for us to detect in our cup. I think the jury is still out on how much stress we should be avoiding during processing and how much stress is stimulating quality like in winemaking. The point of this research so far is to just think about how we are treating our coffee and maybe some of the things that we do not even think about, like how much stress is my seed experiencing? How much stress is my coffee experiencing while I'm processing it? And do our own research because the researchers aren't doing, or doing this job of correlating these events to flavor, but we can start doing that in our own mills, in our own farms to see you know, potentially doing an incredibly stressful, very mechanical, very high impact type of processing and taste that coffee over time. I think you'd have to taste that coffee over six months to a year to see how it's aging um, compared to a process where you treat that coffee incredibly gently, where you do, you know, pick one cherry at a time and bring it on a pillow to the Beneficio, maybe pulp it by hand. Try to do something that is so gentle and taste that coffee and see how it ages over time and see if stress could be benefiting you by releasing some compounds or perhaps stress is not benefiting you. Um, I think this is something that we're all going to have to do on our individual farms because again the researchers aren't doing it but I think it's an interesting place to start thinking about this. So unfortunately I don't have answers for you yet. I don't have a prescription of how gentle or how rough you can be with your coffee Um, but that wasn't exactly the point of this episode. Um, The other thing that I was really interested in discovering with you guys was the journey of research, the journey of these researchers. Because sometimes we can look for research related to a certain topic, but one of the reasons I'm sharing these papers with you is that this shows the body of work of a particular group of researchers in Germany. I find it interesting to see the development of ideas and curiosity. We can see the original question that Dirk Selmar and the group had in their first paper in 2005 and where it's taken them over the last five years from sugar in green coffee to germination to stress. But this question about how we should be drying for maximum quality is just getting started. And I think I will need to tackle it again in another episode where we see what the Brazilians have to say about drying. So we're going to go from, you know, these very small experiments in Germany. Remember, a lot of these are you know 100 bean samples like they're doing very very small um, measurements because they also want to do a lot of replicates and they can't take all of this coffee over to germany so the advantage of what the brazilians are doing is that they have their labs and their farms in very close proximity so a lot of the research that's being done in brazil is a lot more applicable to most coffee farmers so we're going to look at it uh in a future episode from that angle And here we are at the end of another show. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Did you like this episode? Do you see coffee in a different way after listening? If so, consider joining and helping me make more. The patrons make it possible for me to carve time out of my week to make these episodes and to have them available for free to everyone else. For as little as $3 a month, it's like having a cup of coffee with me. Patreon is where I can interact with listeners, get your feedback, and suggestions for future episodes. My new favorite thing we are doing is called Office Hours, where I hop on with you guys and answer your questions live. It's like a digital hangout, like the podcast after the podcast. And if you can't join, but enjoy listening and get value out of these episodes, please share with a friend who loves coffee or wine. This is a small niche podcast with no advertising, so word of mouth is the only way for it to grow. If you want to be notified when the next one is coming out, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. Lucia is L-U-X-I-A. You can find links in the show notes for the research cited in this episode and the coffee shops mentioned. Thanks for listening, and remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.